what we call the Old Testament, they call the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, T stands for Torah, for law. Uh, the N stands for Nevi'im. And the K stands for Kethavim. Uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so when Jesus taught the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he talked, talked to them in that order. I don't know if you were able to hear that, but the three-part Old Testament, Torah, Nevi'im, and Kethavim, the law, the prophets, and the, and the writings. And then the New Testament's also in three parts. The Gospels, the history, and the epistles. Um, God is three, and that's his signature, and you can tell when both testaments are his signature. I don't know if I ever talked to you about this, but there's an interesting passage in Numbers 6, uh, 24 through 26, called the High Priestly Blessing. And... Uh, when the high priest would do this blessing on the priests, he would form a triangle, which was their symbol for God. And then he would hold his fingers apart like this. If you've seen Star Trek, you know, Spock and, and Shatner are both Jews, and so they came up with this idea uh, out of this. The symbol of the triangle was a symbol for God. If you take out a dollar bill and look at the back side of it, it was designed by a man named Chaim Shalomoch. Uh, literally means life Solomon or life peace. Um, anyway, he designed that and he made that triangle on the left side of the dollar bill, the pyramid, the all-seeing eye up above. And the three corners, when, when the Jews would make matzah, they would make it shaped like a triangle. And then they would put them on top of each other in opposite directions. And uh, this is free. This isn't directly connected with Psalms. But uh, formed the Mogan David, the, the star or the shield of David. And when they cooked the bread, they always made it in triangular shape. And they pierced it with a fork and striped it with a fork. So when Jesus said, this is my body, it's pierced and striped already. And the middle matzah is the one that he would have broken at the end of the meal. Uh, on Friday, they take the three matzos and lay them out. And the, the parents take the middle one and hide it. And the children have to wait through the Sabbath. And then on Sunday... The children go out and look for it, and they find it. And they bring it back and put it back into the, to the mix of the dough. So you've actually got three pieces of unleavened bread that are combined in one, which is really a powerful image of the Trinity, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then this image, the Lord bless you and keep you, three times it says Yahweh there. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh uh, turn his face toward you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so the shalom image is this. That's the Hebrew letter shin. Shin is the word for the first two teeth, the front teeth. And it looks like 
that sort of. So anyway, that's stuff that I thought you might be interested in. Uh, I just it came to me when I was talking about uh, the the Tanakh and the blessings that come from that. And we were going to look at Psalm two together, and um, I imagine one or two of you had time to look at that and maybe make a list of things that it taught us. Uh, if you didn't have time, I understand. My wife was going to do it, and she didn't have a chance to either. Oh, you did. I wondered why you were so long in the bathroom. Uh, okay. Well, uh, the types of things that you would see here is like number number one and two. Maybe you can add some things to this. Uh, verse one and two is rebellion against the Messiah and against Yahweh Himself. And notice it does say against Yahweh. The capital L, capital O, capital O R, capital D, and against his anointed one, and that Hebrew word is Mashiach, Messiah. So rebellion against them, and then verse three indicates that God was in control of them, but they decided to break those controls. Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. In other words, People who rebel against God, and look at God's response. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. And then look at the word Lord again. It's a different word. It's the human figure of God, the one sitting on the throne that Isaiah saw. The Lord scoffs at them. So man's rebellion to God is hilarious to think that people would rebel against the living God. That's crazy. And then verse uh, 5, then refers to the future, the judgment. And that's a very strong word in Hebrew, the word then. Uh, At that time in the future, he will rebuke them in his anger and terrify them with his wrath. So they will be afraid of God. And then verse 6, the word installed can also be translated to pour out as a sacrifice. So he could be saying, I have sacrificed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And sure enough, Jesus would be poured out as a sacrifice. But it's also, I have installed or established my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so, uh, the one who is the king is also the one who scoffs in verse 4, Adonai. And then verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of Yahweh. Now, this is the king's statement. God speaks in verses 4, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 4 and 5 and 6. And then man speaks, the king. And he says, I will proclaim the decree of Yahweh. This is God's command to the king. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, it actually says. In other words, I fathered you today. Uh, This indicates that the Messiah would be the son of God. Right here in this verse. 
And it doesn't say become your father at NIV. Uh, does your... If, if a translation says begot, that's what it actually is. It means to bear a child. Hmm? Yeah, to give the child life. And then his statement, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Here's a prediction that all the Gentiles will come to worship the king who is the son of God. When it says nations in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word is goyim, and that's what the Jews refer to everybody outside of Israel as. And so he's saying the Gentiles will come. And uh, he will rule the ends of the earth. And then verse 9, this verse is quoted in Revelation over and over. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Everybody knows this is a message about the Messiah. He will control those who are his people. The ones he judges, he will dash in pieces like pottery. So there's a division within these, within verse 9. He will rule one group and judge the other. Dashing them in pieces like pottery. Uh, Jeremiah was told by God to go to the potsherd gate and take two big heavy jugs with him and take the elders of Israel. And you remember Jeremiah is the one who prophesied through the destruction of Jerusalem in, in 586 B.C. And so Jeremiah goes to the potsherd gate and he's carrying these big jugs with him. And the elders follow him and wonder what he's doing. And he takes those jugs and slams them against the wall. And smashes them. And Jeremiah turns around and said, This is what Yahweh will do to you because you have disobeyed him. And their response was, Well, the temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord. God's not going to destroy the temple of the Lord. He won't allow it to be destroyed. He said, You can say temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord all you want. But this place will be plowed up like a field. He's quoting Micah, the prophet there. Um, Micah said, Jerusalem will be plowed like a field. And the third time Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem after they had assassinated his governor he had set up, he was so angry. He was already angry. The second time, when Zedekiah rebelled against him, the last king, he took Zedekiah outside the city gates, brought all his family in front of him, and put them all to death, and then gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. And uh, took Zedekiah home to Babylon with him. But uh, that, he was angry that time. But the second, the third time, he was even more angry. And this time he hooked up oxen to plows and plowed up the streets of Jerusalem. And when the people came back 70 years later from captivity from Babylon, they couldn't find the city. They said it looked like a, a, a forest up on a hill. They couldn't find any ruins until they looked in the valleys. And then they found the ruins. In the passage, it talks about the stone that the builders rejected. The passage that talks about that is the people bringing up the cornerstone of the temple from down the valley and using it to rebuild the temple because it was still perfectly square. So it's, it's an amazing story. Uh, God will, uh, the, the Messiah will rule his people with a rod of iron. That is, he will bring about complete control of his people. Now, it takes time, but people who become Christians are under the rod of God. And God will end up 
getting control of them. Yes. Rod of iron, uh, there's several things that that refers to, but one is protection from enemies. That the rod was what David used, remember, to beat the lion and the bear uh, when they came against the flock. And, uh, but, no, he carried a rod and a, and a staff. Remember, your rod and your staff. No? Your rod and your staff, uh, they comfort me. The rod was a short stick about this long, very heavy. Uh, don't, don't know what kind of wood they used. It could have been uh, bodark or, you know, something that's very, very strong. Uh, you, you familiar with bodark? You know what that is? A very hard wood and very heavy. Uh, it's called bodark because it was supposed to be the bow that, John, that uh, Joan of Arc uh, made her bow out of. Bodark, you know. Um, uh, there's another wood that grows over there in Israel called ironwood. It's also a very heavy wood that they use for the for the rod. The rod is for beating a donkey or a fool in, in Proverbs. But the staff is a longer instrument to keep the sheep in line. Uh, the rod is more for in, for protection against enemies. So. When it says you will rule them with a rod, with an iron scepter, the scepter idea is the kingship idea. That the Messiah will be the king and he will rule his people uh, with an iron scepter. The iron scepter shows that he is the king and it also is protection against their enemies. But yeah, there is a distinction. The rod and the staff. The staff, remember Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's true. Staff. Yes. Keep them in line. This is really more offensive. An offensive weapon. But the fact that it is a scepter is the prediction that's made in Genesis 49 where Judah says the sept uh, I'm sorry, Jacob says to Judah the scepter will never depart from between your feet until the one comes to whom it belongs. In other words, Jesus. So he is of the tribe of Judah. And the word Jew comes from the word Judah. Uh, the word jewelry we talked about last night comes from the word Judah. All these, Judah is the root word. The Jews refer to themselves as uh, Eudaim. Yudayim, Yud, Judah, is the way they say Judah, Yehuda. Maybe you've heard of somebody named Yehuda. Uh, that's how they say Judah. Judah means praise and thanks. And uh, in the promise that Jacob gives at his death to Judah, he says, "Judah, your brothers will praise you." You should read Isaiah. Uh, you should read Genesis 49. The predictions that Jacob makes for all 12 of, the, of his sons are literally fulfilled later on. Uh, you will dash them in pieces like a, potter's, like a piece of pottery, and that would be uh, uh, the enemies. God will rule his enemies right in the midst of his enemies. Uh, verse 10, therefore you kings be wise. He's basically saying, 
rulers of the earth need to wise up. These are the same kings that rebelled against him back in verse 1 and 2. So he said, you need to wake up. You need to be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. This is the king of kings we're talking about here. So you kings, pay attention. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. <coughs> Apostle Paul says something just like that. Rejoicing with trembling. Trembling because we're afraid of him. We fear him. But rejoice because he has saved us. He's on our side. He's taken us for his own. So serve him with fear. you got fear and trembling together here, along with rejoicing. And then kiss the sun. This is a really interesting verse. The word sun here is an Aramaic word, not the, not the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for sun is ben. The Aramaic word for sun is bar. And this is the word in Aramaic, which indicates that the sun will probably speak Aramaic. And so it says, kiss the sun. That's one way you can translate it. Another one is, worship carefully the sun. Uh, another one is, kiss the ground toward the sun. The, the Hebrew word for worship is to kiss the ground. You know, they would fall on their faces like the Arabs do when they or supposedly or before Allah, uh, bow down and kiss the ground before the sun, lest he be angry and you'd be destroyed in your way. In other words, you want to keep his anger at bay by, by worshiping him. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The psalm begins, Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. Psalm 2 ends with the word blessed. And the rabbis say they put them in there as brackets to cover the first two psalms, which are so important. Wisdom and, and a messianic psalm. Psalm 2 is messianic. It's also called a royal psalm. So the messianic psalms are also royal. And there are other royal psalms. In the Psalter, we're going to look at one if we have time later on. Do you have any comments or additions or questions about Psalm two? Okay. Anger, wrath. We're made in his image. And I got to think of parents. God's our parents. Mm -hmm. We incorporate a lot of these things into our parents' Yes. That's good. That connects uh, very well with us. You all catch that. The, the children relate to their parents the way God wants us to relate to us in this psalm. And the amazing thing about this psalm is it's about the Son of God. And the fact that Messiah would be called Son of God is predicted in this psalm. You know, Jesus never called himself Son of God. Never, ever. Not even once. Remember what he called himself? Man. Son of Man. He was trying to connect with us. Because to him it was obvious he was God's Son. 
So he didn't need to push that idea. He needed to connect with us. That's why he came and was baptized. He did everything we should do. He's our example. But that's a good point, that this is a relationship between children and parents. Okay, I could tell you all the background of Psalm 3 and 4, but I don't want to take time with that. I hope you'll look in a commentary. Uh, Absalom set himself up as king in Jerusalem, I mean in Hebron, 11 miles south of Jerusalem. And uh, in Jerusalem, David heard that Absalom had all the men of Israel on his side. And so he took his bodyguard and fled. And when he got to the Jordan River, his generals said, O king, we need to pass over the Jordan for protection. And he said, no, if God is going to remove me as king, he can do it tonight. And Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are about him going to sleep by the Jordan and then waking up in the morning by the Jordan. Uh, He trusted God so much he didn't worry about crossing over the Jordan. But he did, he, he was afraid because he did flee Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one of the cities that was the latest city conquered by the Jews. David conquered Jerusalem with God's help. Okay, let's go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, believe it or not, connects with Romans 1, 18 and following. They're, They're similar. Psalm 19 and Romans 1 both say that everybody knows. Everybody knows about God. Everybody knows there's a judgment coming. Everybody knows we should obey. But only honest people actually turn to the Lord and obey Him. There are two kinds of people in the world. Both of them are evil at the core of their being. Jesus said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. All of us are evil, good and bad. The difference between the good person and the bad person is the good person wants to bring that evil out in the open, confess it, and deal with it. The evil person wants to put layer after layer of veneer and facade uh, over that evil so people will think they're good. If you want to read a book about this, about the distinction between the two types of people, get the book by Scott Peck, M. Scott Peck. Out of, let me just say that I've read thousands of books in, my, in the last few years, and out of all those books, there are two books that changed my life besides the Bible. Well, there's more than that, but there are two main ones. One of them is this one. It's called People of the Lie. And the subtitle is sort of t- Toward a Psychology of Evil. He's a psychiatrist. PhD and an MD both. Brilliant guy. And as he writes this book dealing with evil, he leaves Buddhism behind. He was a Buddhist and becomes a Christian as he's writing the book. And the end of the book is exorcisms. Really a fascinating thing. Uh, He's a strange guy. He's the guy that wrote The Road Less Traveled. 
I read that twice, and then he was a Buddhist when he wrote that, but I read this one again and again, and I've read in it many times. It deals with toward a psychology of evil, trying to understand the nature of evil. Uh, and it'll tell you about the two kinds of people that exist in the world. All of them are evil, but some want to deal with the evil and become good, and others want to cover up the evil and appear good. That's what Satan does. All right, now, <clears throat> so Psalm 19 and Romans 1, 18 and following, says everybody knows. Even the evil people know that God is real, that there will be a judgment, and that they are sinners. Even evil people know that. Good people know it and openly admit it. Evil people cover it up. And you'll see that if you read that book. It'll shake you. If you read it. The other book that was a life changer for me was the book Disappointment with God by Phil Yancey. Y-A-N-C-E-Y. He's one of my favorite, probably the greatest author from the 20th and 21st century. He just turned 51 years old and he's a prolific writer. He wrote the Bible Jesus read, which is all about the Old Testament. Uh, He wrote... uh, Where is God When It Hurts? That was his first book. Uh, He wrote uh, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. He's got a bunch of great books. Fearfully and Wonderfully Made we're going to read about later on in the Psalms. Okay, Psalm 19. This is of David. I told you Psalm 8 he wrote at night when he talks about the moon and the stars. Psalm 19 he wrote in the daytime. In this psalm, there are three witnesses to the glory of God. The first witness is nature. Paul says in Romans 1, they know about God from the creation of the world. In other words, people look around, they see the order and the beauty around them, they see the universe, they see that that the earth is rotating on its axis and this causes sunrise and sunset and the sidereal movement of the stars. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but can you define time for me? You know, people say, well, it's 9.40 or whatever, uh, 9.34. But that doesn't define time. That tells you what time it is, but it doesn't tell you what time itself is. Time is a measurement of movement. It's a measurement of the Earth's rotation and the Earth's movement around the sun. We're going 19.2 miles a second as we go around the sun. It takes a whole year to make that trip. That's where we get our year. So God put the great lights in the heavens, according to uh, Genesis 1, to give us times and seasons and days and years. So we can study and come up with a calendar. And that's what we've done. The Jewish calendar doesn't have a leap year day the way we do. They have a leap year month. Because theirs is a lunar calendar. And it's so far off that it's about three times out of every five years that they have to add a, a, a month into the calendar to keep from getting too far away from the order of the universe. The solar calendar is much more accurate. But we still have to add a day every four four years or so. So, look what he starts with. 
Literally, it's, it's a participle in the first verse. It says, the heavens are telling, are declaring the glory of God. The skies are proclaiming the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. In other words, if people look at the heavens, they'll see the glory of God there. They'll realize there is one who is behind all this. Nature bears witness to God. The order of the day and night. Back in Genesis 9, after the flood, God says, The day and night, summer and winter, seed time and harvest, these things will never stop until the end of the world. And so this order that we see is from God, and people can study the universe and realize God is there. Let me recommend a book to you. You've probably read Strobel's book, The Case for Faith. Read The Case for a Creator. That's the best of all his books. Uh, he has one since then, but to me, that's the best of his books. The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. Uh, the books are in there in The Case for Faith. Um, Maybe O.E., I don't remember. O.E., thanks. Show me a boy who can spell, and I'll show you a kid with a wasted childhood. (laughs) 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 Me too. It's S-T-R-O-E-B-E-L. It's German. Lee Strobel worked for, you may know this if you've read the book, Uh, Lee Strobel worked for uh, Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist and an evolutionist. But by the time he finished the case for faith and then the case for Christ, he became a Christian and changed everything in his life. And he sold millions of copies of his books. But the case for a creator is the most powerful statement, anti-evolution and for the nature of God. It's really excellent. Yes, sir. Yes, it is. The heavens declare the glory of God. The work of his fingers. Did you get this? Yeah, okay. Exactly. And so it's synonymous or constructive parallelism. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah, verse 5, or verse, uh, I believe it's verse 5 says, you must be born of the water and the spirit. And the next verse says, flesh produces flesh, spirit produces spirit. So water there refers to flesh birth. Spirit refers to the spiritual birth. Good. Yeah, John 3 is, you know, Nicodemus' mind was blown on that one. And the first time I, first few times I studied it, mine was too. But after a while, you begin to realize what he's doing. I read that passage. Yeah. Think in physical terms. 
Paul says we used to judge everyone according to the flesh, but we do so no longer. Okay, so let's go on. And these parallelisms are very obvious in this psalm. You're right. The heavens declare the glory of God. And by the way, God there, it doesn't say the heavens declare the glory of Yahweh. Because you wouldn't know him personally by looking at the heavens. You wouldn't know his name. The word there in Hebrew is ale, which means a mighty one. It just shows that there's a mighty one there. Yes, E-L. Yeah, when it says God, it's either Elohim, Eloah, or El. In this case, El is the most open word for God. See, the heavens don't tell us that he loves us. The heavens just tell us there's a God, a mighty one who set this all up, you see. The heavens don't don't tell us about Jesus or about the law, but they tell us that there is a mighty one who set it up. And so every tribe, nation, and people... You know how many languages there are in the world? Over 6,800 languages. And every one of them has a seven-day week. It's powerful uh, proof of of Genesis 1. Uh, Nobody has a 10-day week, the way you'd think, or a five-day week. Everybody has a seven-day week. 6,800-plus languages, according to Wycliffe Bible translators. When I taught there at Wycliffe, they said there were 6,500 plus, but now they've discovered 300 new languages. So imagine trying to learn 6,800 languages. Only God could do that. And yet there are people in different cultures around the world that are translating the Bible into languages that have never been written before. And they have to teach the people to read their own language. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. Yes. No, in the New Testament, there's no distinction between Yahweh. The, the, the Hebrew word is kurios. I mean, the Greek word is kurios for Lord and theos for God in the New Testament. But what is Adonai? We have to translate it as It's small L-O-R-D, Paula. Oh. Not, not G-O-D. Okay. Gotcha. Now, sometimes you will see G-O-D capitalized all the way through. Well, that's Yahweh. Anytime it's capitalized all the way through, that's Yahweh. But that's fairly rare. Usually it's Lord. But when they call him Adonai Yahweh, my Lord Yahweh, then in the English translations they say the Lord God. And they capitalize God all the way through. Anyway, it's I don't know why they don't just bring the word over. Make it Yahweh and Adonai. And then we grow up learning those, knowing those. Okay, there is no speech or language where their their voice is not heard. In other words, he's just said it pours forth speech, but now he's saying there is no speech or language where the voice of the heavens is not heard. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Let me recommend another author to you. I, I always recommend books. Read anything you can get your hands on by Don Richardson. He's spoken at our school and at our church. He wrote a book entitled Eternity in Their Hearts. That was the first one of his I read. 
And then I read all of them. Eternity in their hearts. He deals with 26 different cultures and shows the God consciousness in each culture. 26 cultures. He goes to what used to be called Burma in Africa. He goes among a tribe of people who had never seen a white man before the missionary that came to their tribe. But they had a group of prophets in that tribe who kept the tribe away from Buddhism. Buddhism surrounded the tribe on all sides. But they had the story of a garden and a man and a woman and a beast that tempted them. And man and woman fell and sinned. And they had that story, and so they resisted Buddhism. And the, the prophets and priests in that tribe predicted one day a man with a white face will come and he will have a book and he will tell us about God, the sky God, and his son. Now let me tell you what the sky God's name was in that tribe. Yawah. See, it's amazing. God is not without a witness. Every tribe knows something about God. And so they predicted that this white-faced man would come with a book and explain the sky God to them and his son. And so the people resisted Buddhism and waited. One day they went to the Buddhist uh, uh, market to do some bartering and some trading. They didn't know each other's languages, but they could do sign language and trade goods. And when they were there, they heard a man standing on a corner holding aloft a book and preaching, and his face was white, and everybody else there was black. And so they told each other, we, we need to take this man back to our tribe. So they kidnapped the man. And on the way to the tribe, he showed them pictures in his wallet of his wife and his sons. He had two sons that were three and four years old. And so they went back and got them and brought them to the tribe. And the man lived there for four years. And at the end of those four years, his kids were a little older. They could speak the language of the tribe just as well as the home language of English. And they went out, and he said, go to the chief first and tell the chief about Jesus. And he went. the, the two boys went out to the chief, told the chief about Jesus in his own language. The chief believed, and the entire tribe shifted and became Christian. And the amazing thing in that tribe was that once a week they had built a building that was big enough to house the whole tribe, and they would enter this building and sing praises to Yawah, and read poetry to Yahweh that they had written, waiting for the man to come to tell them about the gospel. Yes, that's right. Through this psalm, through the fact that they could see the order of the universe and they knew there was a mighty one there, they even had his name almost right. Yahweh, that's so close to Yahweh. And there are many other stories like this. There's 26 different stories He's, a, he's an anthropologist, so he goes into all these tribes and learns their stories. I could tell you story after story, but you should read the book. Uh, it will get you so excited about missions. Every culture has a key to unlock the gospel in that culture. Uh, there was another tribe. Uh, 
where all the people heard that there was a man coming who would tell them about the sky god again. And so all the people in the tribe built an extra room on their house in hopes that this man would come and stay with them. Isn't that amazing? Uh, there's all kinds of stories in this book. And uh, the Holy Spirit somehow delivers the gospel to these people uh, through men who come and tell them about Jesus. What about the people who lived before who, who had not heard the gospel, who worshipped Yahweh, who tried to do what was right? What happens to them? You know, Paul in Romans 2 says if they are a law to themselves and to their people with the law written on their hearts, he says God will judge each one's works according to the gospel. And so he seems to indicate there that there is a possibility that people can come to the Lord without even knowing his name, which is really amazing. But if, if the scripture is right, you know, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But if the scripture is right, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say the sin of the church. So there is a sense in which everybody's forgiven. All right, so. Yeah, in, in Peter? Well, that's a can of worms. A friend of mine wrote his master's thesis at Abilene on that. Uh, I read it, proofread it for him, and Paula typed it up for him. Uh, I think I understand that passage, but let's save that one. <laughs> Maybe we can talk about it later, because it's a big one. All these passages that in First Peter, Peter didn't write First Peter. First Peter five twelve says that Silas wrote it uh, for Peter, and then Peter did write Second Peter, but Silas uses some really tough language in that in that third chapter that you're talking about there. Anyway, verse four. There's no speech or language, their voice is not heard, but their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now the Hebrew, if you look at the footnotes, verse 4 doesn't say their voice, it says their line goes out through all the earth. If this is the earth, and over here is the sun shining on the earth, there is actually a line You've seen it. If you've seen the pictures of the earth from space, there is a line between light and dark, and that line goes out through all the earth. And I think that's what the writer is aware of here. The, the line, toward, uh, the part toward the sun, and the line is between the, the light and the dark. The scripture says God divided between the light and the dark. He called the light day, and the dark he called night. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words the end of the world. And then he describes what the sun does. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Now, this is poetry, not meant to be taken literally. There's no tent that the sun goes into, which is like a bridegroom. So this is synonym. Uh, what do we call this? Not a metaphor, but simile. Uh, the sun is like a bridegroom coming forth from his chamber, his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. 
It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is hid from its heat. So here's all the order of the universe in these first six verses. So the first witness to the nature of God is in the universe. But it's just to the nature of the Mighty One. That's all we can know. The second witness is the Word of God. Look what he says. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Now, if you stop there and count them, you'll see that there are six descriptions of the word. You've got law, statutes, precepts, commands, fear, ordinances. Six is an incomplete number. There's more word yet to come is what this indicates. And then he describes these words. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. So the word of God is sweet. When you talk about it, it's sweet and it's fun and it's joyful. But you remember the prophets that ate the word of God? And John said, when it went into my stomach, it hurt. Ezekiel said, it tastes like honey in my mouth, but it made my stomach hurt because it's hard to do. It's easy to talk about. It's sweet to discuss, but it's hard to do. So the second witness to the nature of God is in the Word itself. And then the third witness is our conscience, the human conscience. Conscience. You ever think about that word? Con means with. Science means knowledge. There's something with knowledge in us that reveals to us God, the nature of God, our conscience. And so he says here, in keeping them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern errors? The word his isn't in there. It really means, you know, who can discern errors in my personality? Who can discern the errors that I commit? What if I make a mistake and I don't see the mistake? Who can discern that? Well, this is a rhetorical question. God can discern that. God sees everything about us. The reason he has to see everything is so he can forgive everything. You know, it used to really bother me. I studied the book of Hebrews. said the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
splitting and piercing through joints and marrow, even to the, the thoughts and the intents of the heart, stripping us naked and splitting us open before the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. In other words, God knows every single thing about us. He knows more than we know about us. Why does he want to know so much? It used to really bother me until I went on and studied the book of Hebrews and found out that he's our high priest. And to forgive all our sins, he must know all our sins. And so he forgives all. Who can discern errors? God. Forgive my hidden faults. Notice we have a warning in our conscience. We have a reward if we keep the word. And then verse 12 says, God sees our errors and even our hidden faults, the little things that we don't see. Now, that's parallelism too there in that verse, by the way. And then he says, keep your servant also from willful sins. Did you know under the law that there is no sacrifice for willful sin? There's no sacrifice for adultery. There's no sacrifice for murder. There's no sacrifice for willful sin. So how can you be forgiven? See, it has to be in your relationship with God. David committed both of those terrible sins. And God forgave him of both of them. So keep your servant also from willful sins so they may not rule over me. What happens if we sin willfully? What if a Christian has a problem with alcohol or a problem with lust or a problem with food? You know, what if we continue to sin willfully? We have a girl at our school who's 23 years old who's been an alcoholic since she was 11. And she has struggled mightily to overcome it. And we had to ask her to leave school one semester because she fell back into drinking and did some foolish things. And so when she was asked to leave school, it devastated her. And we got her set up in a place where she could get some help, and she did. And she's still working with AA. She meets with them on a regular basis. She came back and asked to get into school again during the summer. Uh, for our May semester, and uh, our, I'm on the ethical conduct committee, so I get all the knowledge of everything I don't want to know, and and so we let her back in, and she has been sober now for over three months. I get a text from her at the end of each month telling me how long she's been sober, and she's she's overcoming. She's a beautiful girl, has no reason ever to go back to that. And so she's sticking with it this time, she says. She says she'll never drink again. And then she says, at least not for today. You know, sin, sin gets its hooks in you. And when it gets a hold of you, it's overwhelming. And you just you have to somehow find a way to deal with it. And I believe sin's in our genetic makeup. I believe we inherit it from Adam. Yeah, yeah. God, you know, David sees himself as God's servant. 
And even when he broke God's law, he's still a servant in his house. In fact, David is the one in Psalm 2 who wrote Psalm 2 who is called the Son of God in that psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So more than just a slave or a servant, David is a son. And when he says, keep your servant back from willful sins, he calls himself your servant also in verse 11. He says, by them, that is by your regulations, your servant is warned. So, yeah, he knows that he has a relationship with the master. God is the master and he's the servant. And so he says, keep me back from willful sins that they may not rule over me. There's the key right there. Willful sins will rule us if we keep doing them. The scary thing about being a Christian, this is from Jerry Bridges' book, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness. He says, Christians sin only when they choose to do so. That's scary. That means we're being willful. And there's no sacrifice for that. That's why you have to go back to him and confess your sins. And I love 1 John 1, 9. If we keep on confessing our sins, he is faithful and righteous in order that he may forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We keep on confessing, but his forgiveness took place at the cross. So our confession is not to get forgiveness. Our confession is because we are forgiven. I love that. And then the most... Excuse me? Janelle? One of the things that I have discovered in trying to walk my walk, and I don't have the education you have, but by the leading of the Holy Spirit, is allowing God to show us these secret sins yes. that we're not even aware of. That's right. And then willingly dealing with them. Yes. You know, daily. Even alcoholism, that's, that's obvious. You know that that's a sin. You know, adultery, you know that that's a sin. But some of the, the attitudes that we have, that's right. some of the things in our hearts that haven't been dealt with. Prejudice, judgmentalism. And we don't even, you know, we think we walk in such a holy walk, and then all at once God shows you this, <laughs> what it looks like to me. Yes. You know, and so the willingness to deal with that and, and be so glad that God loves us enough to show us that to me is... I guess it's a fine-tuning as we walk, but it's also the difficulty. You know, uh, I believe when we're first born again, we see the things that were so obviously yeah. sin, and we say, well, God, we give them to you. But then as we walk, some of the things, you know, even even fear. I was yes. talking about that. Fear comes in in such a way that you don't recognize it as fear, and it's the opposite of faith that we have, right. we have to deal with. It's like, it's like driving up to a bunch of mountains. The ones that are closest always look the biggest. But when you get beyond them, you see the snow caps. You know, I remember dealing with lust and, you know, the seven deadly sins when I first became a Christian. And then I started finding things like pride and envy and stuff that I didn't even know I had because I was dealing with all these big ones up front. And when I got behind them, I saw that they're even more important ones. And yes, you're right. And the more you walk, the more he reveals. I remember one time I was losing sleep. I'd wake up at 4 in the morning, 3 in the morning, couldn't go back to sleep. And I, I read a book that said if you wake up like that, you're angry about something. 
and you need to ask God to reveal it to you. And I asked God to reveal it to me, and it wasn't a month before he revealed it to me. And I dealt with the forgiveness of that issue, and I went on and slept through the night. So when he says, be angry, but don't sin, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, you know, get over it, deal with it, and then God can help you deal with some other things. As long as we're in the flesh, we're going to have something that's a problem. That's right. Yeah. That's all you get is today. That's it. Tomorrow you get up, you fight the battle again. It never ends. It's it's a, it's a daily to war. And you and you can tie Romans six twelve to verse thirteen, let them not rule. He says, Don't let sin reign in your mortal. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a perfect parallel. Yeah, it is. Romans really is built around this psalm, at least much of it. Okay, then he says, then I will be blameless, innocent of, in the Hebrew it says, the great transgression. What's the great transgression? Unbelief. Rejecting Jesus. Rejecting God. So if I don't let willful sins rule me, if God keeps me back from that, then I'll be blameless and I won't reject God. And he won't reject me. And then verse 14, a wonderful prayer. Again, parallelism. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. He starts out the psalm with Ael, the mighty one, and he ends up the psalm with a relationship with God. Three witnesses, nature, the law, and the conscience. Let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back and look at Psalm 22 together. And then I hope to look at Psalm 46.